You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. Simply search Faith Roots on YouTube and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Hello, I'm Willie George. Welcome to this edition of the Faith Roots Podcast. We're talking about the four things that every leader needs to know. Now, week one, we talked about how that every leader ought to be a self-starter. Last week, we talked about the importance of confidence in a leader. And this week, we're going to focus on another idea that's absolutely essential to great leadership, and that is the leader's ability to delegate, to find helpers, even the most gifted and anointed leaders must learn how to delegate. I think what is amazing to me is how Jesus delegated even though he had the Spirit without measure. John 3.34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives not the Spirit by measure. Unto him is in italics, but I think the meaning of that is still very, very much implied. In other words, Christ had the Holy Spirit without measure. He had all the spirit there was to have. Uh, John saw the spirit descending on him. Uh, I can tell you this, that every ministry office that we read of in the New Testament, uh, the five that are found in the book of Ephesians and uh, others that uh, pop up in a couple of other places, let me just give them to you. Uh, Jesus is called the apostle, the high priest of our confession. That's uh, Hebrews 3.1. Uh, he calls himself and refers to himself as a prophet in Matthew thirteen fifty seven. No prophet is without honor except in his own country and in, among his own kindred. Uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 8 and verse 1, he is called in, an evangelist. He went preaching and showing the glad tidings of the evangel uh, throughout every village and, and, and so forth. And so definitely if anybody qualifies as an evangelist, it was Jesus. Uh, he calls himself a pastor. I'm the good shepherd, John 10, 11. Uh, he's a teacher. Uh, the first place that describes his teaching is Matthew 4, 23. Nicodemus came to him and said, Master, we know you are a teacher. Come from God. Uh, he is in the ministry of helps. Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 27. I am among you as one who serves. And then uh, seven times in the gospel of Matthew, and I won't go into all those, uh, one of these days I'll do a whole podcast on children's ministry, but uh, seven times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus ministered to children. So everything that the Spirit anoints us to do today in the body of Christ to minister, Jesus had that ministry first. He is the original body of Christ. Now, what's fascinating also is, is that he was limited in scope. And what I mean by that was that he could only do so much because he was confined to a single human body. Now, all of that changed with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And he then dispersed all of those gifts, all of that anointing, all that power into the body of Christ, which could be present in many places at the same time. And uh, for that reason, Jesus confined his ministry to one place, to the nation of Israel. Had he been called to the whole world, there's no way he could have done justice uh, to the whole world in one human physical body. You know, I remember as a young Christian, I thought, man, I wish Jesus was still here. If I could just see him, if I could just talk to him. 
and and what a mistaken notion because so many people have that same idea but the, w- w- what if he was your time to come to visit him would probably only last uh, you know 30 or 40 seconds it would take you uh, 25 30 years to get your visit uh, if not uh, more than that uh, and what he did he chose something much much better and that is the ability to live in us all and that really is the thinking of a very, very new baby Christian, one who knows very little about uh, the things of God. Remember this, God's program always progresses. It always gets better. What we're, We may be seeing a lot of evil in this world and so forth right now, but the program of God will only get better, and we will only learn more about what Christ has done for us, what's available to us through Christ, so we need to keep our heads uh, filled with those encouraging ideas. All great leaders understand that in order to delegate, you first have to model. And uh, modeling ministry was Jesus' purpose. The reason that he ministered in Israel is so that he could start with a number of men, 12 men, which is the number of government in Scripture, and he picked these 12 men to go with him, and he modeled ministry for them. Luke 8, 1, I'm going to read it from the New King James. Now it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. And so he carried them about in his uh, roaming Bible school. Bible schools and seminaries often fail because they're staffed by people who have never done things that they are now uh, teaching others. Uh, What would happen if our medical schools did that? What if if you went to a medical school and uh, the instructor is talking about a particular type of surgery and instead of referring to his own experience, he talks about something that he read about in a book. And but I've never actually done a surgery, but I've seen lots of good slides, and I've I've, I've watched other people operate. I myself never done it. Uh, we wouldn't want a doctor like that operating on us. Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of ministers are trained. Uh, I know I went to Bible school, and and by the confession of many of my professors, they had never really been fruitful in ministry, so they got a degree and and started teaching. And I appreciate their willingness to teach and to help. And I think in some cases. Uh, there are classes that one could teach without necessarily having a lot of ministry experience, New Testament survey, Old Testament survey, certain things like that. I think that would be perfect. But when it comes to actually running a church and ministering to people, it's just very important that those who do the teaching are, are, are those who have actually lived it and done it. Now, my great blessing was when I got out of Bible school, my uncle, whom I worked for, uh, took me on a grand tour, and for the next several years, we went to amazing conferences, and I went to amazing workshops, and I heard people from all different stripes, and some were not from our particular persuasion. I mean, yes, they all believed in being born again. We didn't go to any cults for sure, uh, but we went to people who had slight doctrinal differences with us, and we learned to put that aside because we recognized that there were some things that they had that were absolutely amazing. You know, there's an arrogance to a lot of people in the body of Christ, and I'm just going to be blunt with you. There's an arrogance. A lot of charismatic or Pentecostal people have it. They have the idea 
that if you are not of their persuasion, that you really don't know anything. You can't really know anything till you're filled with the Holy Spirit, till you believe what they believe. And, and, and this is what I found. I came to Christ because a group of Baptists put on a revival, and they not only put this revival on, but they made an amazing investment in my high school before they ever uh, came to town with this revival. I went to the revival because of the influence that they had in my school. Not that they preached to me. They were just great. They were awesome. The youth pastor of this Baptist church knew who I was as a football player. And I, I didn't know anything about him. Never went to his church. He, he, he bragged on me. They put on banquets for our team. Uh, our coaches loved them because whenever there was a budget shortfall and they couldn't do a dinner or a banquet, this church took it on. They did it. And we would go and they weren't preachy. They didn't try to witness to us every time we came around them. You know, sometimes people try to witness and share their faith when they have absolutely no influence whatsoever. And you're pretty much wasting your breath. Influence comes before uh, the preaching. That's what you see with Jesus. His influence very often was a miracle or the kindness that he showed, or the fact that he would go and eat a meal with a publican or a sinner was a way of showing influence. Jesus did that a lot. And so uh, I learned from people that weren't of our particular per, uh, uh, religious persuasion, and uh, one of the best things that I ever did. Now listen, you send people and you go to things that are sometimes outside your organization. Sometimes the best people for teaching on marriage are not in your particular group. And you want to hear what they have to say. Uh, sometimes we think that we don't need that. We only need things that teach us more about the Father or how to walk with God. And all that's important. And it's a beginning, no doubt about it. But there's some human relationship skills that we also need to have. Uh, pastors would send us their children's workers. And uh, I always loved it when they did that. And uh, I, I think that it's, it's one of the smartest things you can do is to recognize we're not as good here as we should be or as we uh, know of others to be. So they would send their youth and children's guys to us. This is what I would say, though. When you get them back home, always sit them down, debrief them. Ask them what they heard. Uh, find out what was taught them. And then adjust it and make sure that it fits your church or that you, we do something different than probably what you would do. So when your people come home, sit down and talk with them about how to apply this in your church because then you take somebody else's modeling and you make it your own. Now, this is something that you, you've got to understand as a leader, the burden or the responsibility of finding and installing helpers is on you. It's not on the Lord. Now, we pray to the Lord to send laborers into his harvest, but listen to what God told Moses, Exodus 18, 20, and 21. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Okay, two things I've got to do with my helpers. I've got to show them the way that we walk. This is your personal behavior and the work they do. I'm responsible for that. And I have to teach it, which is verbal, and I have to demonstrate it, which is show them. That's uh, action. Moreover, you shall select 
King James says it like this, Moreover, you shall provide from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Now, this is in effect what God told Moses to do. He's saying, Moses, don't wait for volunteers. Draft. You know, when you begin a work, when you start a work, you'll have a certain group of people who will come to you at the very beginning that are wonderful. They're tuned to your pitch. They've got the same tuning fork you've got. They vibrate when, when you say something. And, and you love having people like that. But can I tell you about them? There's never enough of them. There are never enough of them. And so you get stuck not having enough people to run the church the way you need to because you begin to think that everybody that comes should come like the first ones came. Those are your first fruits people. God always gives you a first fruits group to get started, but they're never enough to do everything that needs to be done. So the next thing that you have to learn to do is to draft. Jesus didn't have a single volunteer. Think of it. Not a single volunteer among the 12. He handpicked every single one of them. He went after them. He encountered them on purpose in different situations so that he could see how they were going to behave. And then he prayed about them carefully and he selected them to follow. This is how he got his helpers. And you see the same thing in what God told Moses in the book of Exodus. God told Moses, you shall provide. By the way, that is Exodus 18, a great lesson uh, there in how to pick workers. Uh, That's all the time I have for today. But if you don't get anything else, get this, that leaders need to model the people who are going to follow them. They need to show them how they're going to get their work done. And you have to provide that model. You provide that model, it's amazing. And and even when you don't have that skill and you send them somewhere else, it's still your responsibility to put the model in front of them. We're talking about leadership, and this week in particular, we're talking about the importance of delegating. If you can't delegate, you can't be a leader. The whole purpose of you being a leader is to effectively pass on what you know and what your work is to the people who are gathered beneath you. That's where you begin. First step in the process of delegation is qualification. Now, we talked about modeling yesterday, and it's very, very important. Actually, I I introduced it first, but it's the middle step in delegation, and then Jesus modeled his ministry. But along the way, he found people to help him, and before he chose them, he qualified them. The Apostle Paul is absolutely emphatic about following qualifications for those who lead in the church. We want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses here. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, someone in a place of leadership, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, 
not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. Now he goes on for a few more verses and talks about the importance of a deacon even being qualified. The Bible teaches that if you are going to represent Christ as a leader, if you're going to stand above others, communicate, teach, and instruct, and represent the Lord in the church, you have to meet qualifications. Unfortunately, about the only qualifications anymore that many believers really want to see in those that they follow, they want to see great speaking ability and they want to see the entertainment factor. They want someone who can really entertain them. They want to laugh a lot when they go to church. And there's nothing wrong with using humor in your preaching. Absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. But the point that I want to make is today we have a lot of people in pulpits who are great communicators, but who do not have great depth in character. And for that reason, we see people falling like flies into moral failures and people talking about not being able to cope with the pressures of ministry. Listen to me. If you can't cope with the pressures of ministry, uh, where is your relationship with God? I mean, I, I thought that, that we were communicating because we knew the Lord. I think that's one of the first things people lose is they lose that walk with God. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm saying that they're not walking closely with the Lord because when you walk closely with the Lord, you're going to speak from a place of strength. People will be able to tell that you're coming from a place of strength. They will also sense the fresh in what you say, uh, because uh, that's what we minister from. We minister from the well. We go to the well, and as a result, uh, Peter and John said this. They said, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have. Uh, give I thee, is what they said in Acts chapter 3 when they healed the crippled man. Such as I have, give I thee. That's what we're doing. We're giving things that we have already. We've been given this, now we're passing it on. And uh, so if you're running dry, then you need to take a little break and get refreshed because uh, God doesn't want you ministering on your own strength and in your own strength and without His refreshing. We go to Him first. Uh, God will not ignore these qualifications. And when someone gets into trouble morally and when someone fails uh, they will eventually ultimately be exposed. Listen to what uh, uh, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Meaning that when we see people who are judged, they ran through roadblocks. The, when they got in trouble, it wasn't the first time. They ran through roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Listen, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Actually, what God is saying is, I dealt with you to wake you up, to keep you from going too far. But it's, it's unfortunate that they cause other people to stumble and give great occasion of the Lord's enemies to blaspheme. And uh, we don't want to see that. Now, God is looking for people who are qualified, people who have a relationship. And unfortunately, there are loads of people who fill these positions because of their popularity 
And because of a look, because of their personal presence, because of uh, uh, their charisma, and they don't have the treasure down deep inside. Listen to what uh, the Lord said to Samuel the prophet. First uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. He was looking for one of Jesse's sons to anoint as king of Israel. And uh, he looked at the first one. The oldest was a great-looking guy, had a commanding presence. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. And I think it was more than just he had muscles and was tall. And he was the oldest son in the family, and as a result, he had certain leadership skills. Uh, he had a natural leadership ability. We see the way that he uh, railed on David when David came to the battlefield. Uh, he was very quick in his uh, w judgment of David, and he was very harsh. He, so he was not afraid to address what he felt like was error, but he wasn't the guy. He wasn't the guy who had the relationship with God. And the Lord said to Samuel, for the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And then when you read this, when Jesus is talking about the coming judgment, he says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. There are going to be a lot of people when we get to heaven that you thought, I thought, were going to be amazing in the way they were rewarded and, and that God's going to bring them to the front of the line. We're going to be shocked to see a lot of these people are not what we thought they were. And, and God is not bound to honor our preferred communicators. So God does not look at outward appearance or speaking ability or natural charisma. He doesn't look at that. How a leader handles smaller responsibilities is what qualifies him. Handling small things, it's very, very important. How do you handle small things? It's indicative of how you're going to handle big things. Jesus said this uh, in Luke 16, 10, New King James Version. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Interesting, isn't it, that God chose David from being shepherd of apparently a relatively small number of sheep. But those small number of sheep, that small number of sheep, they were very important to him, and he cared for them like they were his own. He stuck his neck out for the sheep when a lion or a bear came to grab one of the lambs from the flock. He, he treated it like it was a huge deal. And God saw how he handled things in the small theater uh, small things are great determining factors. Watch how people handle small things. If people are too proud to handle small things, I had a guy in my church one time years ago who had a called a full-time ministry, and he volunteered at first to be an usher, but he didn't last three months as an usher. It, was, it wasn't important to him. And uh, he said, I've got more to give than this. I've got more to give than passing offering buckets and so forth. And listen to me. Uh, he failed the test. God watched him to see whether or not he had pride. And he couldn't stick it out as an usher. Couldn't do it. He didn't last a year. Uh, his Bible school was two-year Bible school, and he didn't last a year as an usher. I think it was just a few months, and he was already out the door. And he had to go somewhere else to find what it is that he is supposed to do. And you know what? He never did make it. He failed miserably in every attempt he had to minister because he insisted 
upon being at the top in every position he went to. He felt like he was able to communicate better than any of the pastors that he sat under. And you know, it's a sad thing. It's a humbling thing. I, I know when I came to Tulsa, I went to work at a church. I'd already been in ministry for eight years. And I went to work at a church where I thought I should be able to preach a lot and perhaps be the associate pastor. The pastor gave that position to another guy. Now, he waited till I got there, and he let me preach, and then he had the other guy preach the following Sunday night, and he picked the other guy, and I knew he picked the other guy, and it broke my heart. But you know what? In my heart of hearts, I knew something. I knew the other guy was more qualified than me. I knew the other guy was a better speaker than me. I knew the other guy was right for the job. And so I was back in, stuck where I had been before. I worked for this man for about two and a half years. And I got to preach in the church, in its pulpit, six times in that two and a half years and two times it was on a, maybe three times, it was on a weeknight service. Never, never again on a major service time. But, but weeknight Bible studies. And then when we had really big traveling speakers in town, and uh, there would be an evangelist, say, at, at one of the other churches that packed out the place. And I might have 15, 16 people in my crowd that night. That's when I got to preach. They gave me all those services. But I was faithful to it, and I treated each one of them like they were the, like I was preaching in a huge convention. And that's why God favored me later on and gave me uh, what was the, the largest single-site church in Oklahoma. He blessed us greatly. And the reason is because I was faithful in small things. I treated kids' ministry like it was a huge deal. I knew that loads of people looked down their noses at me. I could tell they thought I was nothing more than a babysitter. They did not have high esteem for me. I had to suck up my pride to deal with that, and I did. But God honored me because I was willing to do well in the small thing. Now, great leaders value small things even after they reach the top. You know why? Because they realize small things make a big difference. You show me a big company that doesn't think the small things are important anymore, I'll show you a company that will eventually lose its market share. There's an airline that we've known for years that has prided itself on customer service. And today, I don't know what happened, but their management is totally different. They're not the way they were when they started. They don't value the small things anymore. And uh, they have become just like the other airlines that are way too big. They've got way too many planes in the air, way too many uh, routes to run. They can't take care of what they have. And so they're dropping the ball. And uh, they don't value small things. And I'm going to tell you something. It will backfire on them. They will lose business. They will suffer because they don't value the small things anymore. It's not important to them to do the small things right. Faithful people care about the smaller things. They know they're important. Faithful people are resourceful people. Now listen to this. This is huge. A faithful worker, a faithful worker never resents not having resources. 
They may not like it. They may wish they had more tools, but you never see these people resentful of not having resources. They are the kind of people who love to make the most of what they have. Luke 16, 10, who, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Uh, how you handle the small stage is an indicator of what you do on the big one. So faithful people make the most of what they've been given. I was in a church that had almost no budget for children's ministry. Most of my stuff was handmade. I didn't have a budget for a lot of puppets. You know what I would do? I would get uh, stuffed animals that were worn out, and I would cut them apart and make puppets out of them and give them a movable mouth. I, I remember uh, I had a, a little a box, a little cardboard box, and I painted it up to look like the home. Uh, of some little animal lived in it. And there was a puppet that I would have that would come out the top of the box. I would stick my arm in the back of that box. And this gave me the effect of a ventriloquist dummy. Now, I wasn't a ventriloquist, but I learned how to put personality in this puppet. And the kids loved him. And so all I had was a cardboard box, but I made it work. Listen to me. People who are faithful can make the most from very little, and they take great pleasure in that. They love that they get to do that. Listen to what Jesus said about this in Matthew's chapter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 6. And uh, fascinating stuff. I, I love this. I love these passages. He said, Take heed that you do not your charitable, charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. In other words, when you're faithful, you're not doing things to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. Uh, he skipped down here to verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is saying very clearly here, it's not important that you're on a big stage when you begin your ministry. You do what you do is unto the Lord, and the Lord will promote you to where you need to be. You have to understand that qualification is one of God's most important considerations as to who He picks and puts in particular places. I'm spending quite a bit of time, maybe an inordinate amount, but it's important. I'm spending a lot of time talking about how God qualifies people. We look at the qualifications that He sets before we give things into the hands of other people. And so Jesus gives three things for us to consider in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, in verse 10, we talked yesterday about how important it is that a person be faithful on a small stage, be faithful with small things. If they can't be trusted with small things, they won't be trusted with big things. And what we see is there are people who were trusted with small things and were faithful in those things before God put them on the big stage. 
Now, in the second verse, verse 11, we read this. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? In other words, Christ is saying that God watches how we handle money. If we do not handle money well, we will not be trusted with greater things in ministry. God uses material wealth, and He has. From the very beginning, He has used material wealth to test the honor of men. Uh, and it happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, when the Lord put the two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life, and right next to it there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had said to Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit of every single tree in the garden, meaning the tree of life, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat the fruit of that, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Well, we know what happened very quickly. Adam and Eve were tempted. Satan lied to Eve, and uh, Adam was not deceived. He knew what was happening, and when his wife ate of the fruit, he committed the sin of high treason against God, he rebelled against God, and he ate the fruit, and he surrendered his dominion over to Satan, who became the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world at that very time. That's what happened with Satan. So Adam was not faithful in the honor test. He did not fail. The very first thing God put into his hand, the opportunity, and he did not honor God. Now, that's pretty typical of uh, of how God tests us. In other words, when God puts a test before us, not a temptation, but a test, He wants to see how we will treat His honor. Uh, the idea that God was somehow wanting Adam to stay away from the tree or he at all costs, you can't get near the tree, uh, actually God could have stopped that. He did stop that later. Listen to this, Genesis 3.24. This is after Adam and Eve sinned. God placed, a cher placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And so if God wanted to keep them absolutely from even touching are getting near the tree that he didn't want them to eat, he had ways of doing it. But the whole idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God wanted them to have an opportunity to get near the tree and then say no to the tree. Now, I don't believe that this was a test that would last all the time there on the earth. I think that had they gone over to the tree that was next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, had they eaten that fruit, they would never have been tempted again by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they didn't do that. They never ate the fruit of the tree of life. God had to keep them from that tree later because they would have lived eternally in separation from God. And that's why he put the angels there, or the cherubim, which are angel-like creatures, and that kept them from getting near to that tree. So God wanted to see, will you honor me? And I see this test all the way through Scripture. He repeated this when uh, the children of Israel came into the land of Canaan. And uh, we read it in the book of Joshua. Fascinating passage here. Uh, God tells Joshua that he is going to give Joshua and the children of Israel the city of Jericho. He's going to do it supernaturally. But this is what he says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. 
But all the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, there's something here that doesn't add up. Because he said all of these things in the city are the accursed things. When I first read that, I thought it meant uh, that God was telling them, don't touch any of the idols. And, and that, that's quite true, and, and, and it's very possible, but it's not the full meaning of it all. The word accursed here in Hebrew means devoted. It means that the things that were in the city were to be devoted to the Lord. Why? Because they were the first fruits. This is the first city they're going to take. You know, there is no warning like this ever after on any of the other Canaanite cities. They too would have had idolatrous things in them and so forth. There was no warning. Don't touch the devoted things. Only the first city, because Jericho was to be given to God totally. It was to make a statement. They weren't to eat the wheat. There was nothing evil about the wheat. In fact, they found later, archaeologically, they found that the stores of wheat were burned in the city of Jericho. Uh, but one guy took some of the, the, the riches of Jericho. That was Achan. And sometimes his name is translated Akar, which is a play on words because it means evil. And, and so he is cursed uh, because he, he takes things that do not belong to the Lord. And the picture here, or that do not belong to him, they belong to the Lord. Uh, the picture here is of a person who takes things that belong to God and it causes other people to suffer. And that's that's what happens when people withhold offerings. When God's people withhold their generosity and their giving and so forth, uh, they, they cause other people. They cause pastors a great deal of financial pressure. They cause other people not to hear the gospel. Well, that's a serious thing to think about, isn't it? God watches how we handle money. One of the things I've done over the years, I'm, I'm no longer the senior pastor, so uh, you know our team still does this in a, a different way, uh, but uh, we watch to see our people giving. How how can we get in the pulpit and ask people to pay their tithes if we ourselves do not pay our tithes? And by the way, I had to deal with people. I had to actually deal with people who took offerings and bring them in because I thought, you know what? I'm not going to take for granted that they automatically pay their tithes just because they take offerings. I want to see. And sure enough, I checked, and one of the guys who was taking offerings, who was good at taking offerings, he was not paying his own tithe. He didn't do it himself. And boy, I raked him over the coals. I gave him a chance to fix it, and thank God he did. But but, but sometimes people will uh, uh, not do what they know they're supposed to do. And to me, if you're going to be a leader, you have to be an example. If you're going to teach generosity, you've got to practice generosity. You can't just teach it. You have to practice it. Now, this is the law of the first fruits. And some people say, well, that's Old Testament. Be careful what you say there, because what a lot of people say when they say that's Old Testament, they're saying that's under the law of Moses, all right? Uh, in innocence, in the Garden of Eden, we have the principle of the first fruits and of the honor. That's what God did with Adam and Eve. He put something of value. A tree is of great value, and he put it into uh, the hands of Adam and Eve. And uh, th there was no sin, but they failed the honor test. Uh, here is a guy who was not under the law. The law is hundreds of years away. This is Jacob, and he has a dream and sees God and sees the angels of God going up and down a staircase uh, there where he is uh, having this dream. And this is Genesis 28, 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat, clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, 
Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I've set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. And the Hebrew it has a definite article there. It's the tenth. It's not just a tenth. It's the tenth. Meaning they knew the tenth was a holy thing. And it wasn't just any tenth. It was the first tenth. Now this is Abel. This is well before the law. This is just shortly after creation. This is Genesis 4.4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, meaning that God answered by fire. He consumed it. Uh, so this is a test of honor, and it's been there all the way through. It, it'll be there in the ages to come. When we are blessed with things, it, then are we going to honor God with the first fruits? Listen to what Proverbs has to say. Wisest man who ever lived wrote this verse. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, this is important. You look at, at whether or not people are faithful with their money. If they're not faithful with their money, these are not people that you can trust with great spiritual influence. Because if they will take God's money, they will take influence away from you. There will be a time when they will cross a border and put their hands into something that they don't need to be touching. And uh, that's pretty typical of what happens when people are not faithful with their money. Money is a real test. One of the things that God looks at in giving things to another person, one thing that we need to consider as well, is can you take care of what belongs to another person? Luke 16, 12, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now I want to tell you, uh, there's a spiritual law here that says this, that that God will not give you something uh, if you've not been faithful, and a person can actually not be faithful and yet still have that thing. I want to tell you a story about that and how that's possible and what eventually happens. Um, God always corrects what's going on in this realm. It may not be as fast as we think, as, as quickly as we think it ought to be done, but He always corrects it. He, he really does. And so one of the things that he looks at is how we treat other people. How we treat others is indicative of how we would treat him. And so God checks to see if we're faithful in those things which belong to another person. Uh, we had a guy in, in our city many years ago who uh, started out on our team. He was one of my guys, one of my favorite preachers of all time. He was a very gifted speaker. Uh, he left our church and uh, began to do some traveling, but ultimately he felt like he was supposed to be a pastor. And I got no trouble with that. How can I object to that when I myself became a pastor in this city? But this is what I did object to. He began to call people out of our church, take them to lunch, and recruit them to work with him on his team. And he did get quite a few people. He took, I will say this, he took hundreds of people. One of the things that he did that was super unethical, just really dirty, 
is we trusted him to speak in our midweek service. He did. He gave an invitation. And a load of people, 35, 40 people, responded to his invitation. That's the kind of ministry he had. He could call people to faith in Christ and get sinners to repent as, as good as anybody I ever saw. But he wanted everybody's name and address and phone number. And so he gave out little cards when they responded. And had I been here, I would never have allowed that. But my associate pastor didn't catch it. And so he let the guy do that. And the guy went out and then immediately began to call these people and talk to them about attending a Bible study. Well, they were one to Christ through him. And in effect, they were one to him. I mean, they loved him. And you can understand why. He brought them to faith. There was something special about what God did. So I, I connected with him about some of these things he was doing and it didn't deter him at all. And one of the reasons that it did not deter him is at the same time that I was telling him that he was unethical, he was being exalted by other ministries. They were putting him on television, giving him interviews, and really talking about what a great guy he was. And so he's not about to listen to me. I'm small potatoes compared to the people who are promoting him. Uh, another pastor in the city was in the office of one of his staff members when this guy called. And so uh, the staffer tells his pastor, hey, so-and-so is calling here. And the pastor says, put him on speaker. So he starts talking to the staff member. And he begins to recruit him, trying to get him to leave the church that uh, this person is working at, not realizing that that church's pastor is sitting right there listening to him. And this pastor just let him go and go and go. And finally, he stopped him. And he said, hey, what are you trying to do? steal one of my workers, and he began to hem-haw around and quickly got off the phone. Well, let me tell you what happened. Uh, not long after this, he fell apart. He lost everything. He was humiliated in front of the city. Uh, his marriage fell apart. Uh, his ethics were awful. Uh, he resigned his church. Uh, one of the last things I heard, he wasn't even in ministry anymore. And it's unfortunate because he had an amazing gift, an amazing gift. But he didn't treat those things that belonged to others the way that he was supposed to. He wasn't faithful in that which is another man's. And it eventually caught up to him. Now, see, he had his own thing for a while. And it was growing and blowing and it was big. And so there appeared to be a contradiction. But I want to tell you this. God does not always deal immediate judgment when somebody gets off base. And so it's quite possible that someone can be unfaithful and yet be promoted. But God lets us know many that are last will be first, and many that are first will be last. Jesus is saying, you cannot tell by how the world treats people what God thinks about people. And eventually, this shows up. And what I want to look for, and this is what, I, what sobers me, is can I do this long term? Will I be faithful over a long period of time? Will I finish well? It's not whether or not you start well, that matters. What matters is, can you finish well? Can you be faithful to the end of your life in ministry? 
And that's what's so very, very important. And we have the models in front of us of so many people who were super faithful all the way to the very end, and they left amazing testimonies. They're very inspiring to work with. Uh, another story I'll tell you. Years ago, uh, I looked out and saw one of our missionaries. He happened to be home, and he'd been on the field quite a bit. So I called him. It was a Wednesday night. I called him up to the platform. I said, what, where have you been? And he told me, and he said he'd just finished a crusade in uh, Liberia in West Africa. And, uh, and I thought, whoa, this sounds great. Uh, how many people came to Christ? And he told us. And I said, I, just out of curiosity, what would it cost to put on a crusade like that? And uh, he said, a big one or a small one? I said, what would it cost to do a big one? He said, we could do a crusade in a stadium and do a good job of it for $25,000. That's what it would cost to do it. I said, in one of these crusades, where they last a week or so, about a week, eight days, something like that, I said, how many people come to Christ? He said, about 50,000. 50,000 people come to Christ for $25,000? That's a can of pop. I said, church, I don't know about you, but I would be willing to give up some pop for a month to see people saved. How many of you would like to do this? So we put change bins in the lobby of our church, and in a matter of about a month, we had $25,000 in coins, and we paid for a crusade. Now, here's what was great about this. When the word of this got out, there was another missionary in our church who was a great missionary evangelist. And he had an amazing ability to communicate and had a lot of healing miracles in his ministry. And then on top of that, there was an international ministry that sent boats and ships into these African countries and sent loads of food. So by the time it was all said and done with, there was church on the move, there was our local missionary, there was this missionary evangelist who preached, and there was this international ministry that sent all this food, and all four of us teamed up together to go back to this country to hit it again. And it was so inspiring that a couple who didn't even attend our church heard about this. They wrote out a check for $25,000 to the missionary and said, when you get done with this one, do another one. And so it was amazing what happened. Now, some time passed, and, and I saw a book that the missionary evangelist had put out. And I read the book. It was about the crusade. And it, I'll tell you, it broke my heart. It really broke my heart. And I'll tell you what happened. What happened was he told the story about this crusade, okay, but he didn't mention Church on the Move. He didn't mention the other missionary. He didn't mention the international ministry that sent all the food. He told the story as if his ministry was the only one who was there. And I thought, why do you want to do that? Why would you take something beautiful, something beautiful and wonderful, and make it ugly by not sharing credit? And it's not that I needed to have credit. I just was appalled that he would not even mention the guy who was responsible for putting all the details together. Uh, he, would, he didn't mention the, the international ministry who was so influential was able to go in and speak to the president of that country and to its parliament. And it was a fascinating story, but he made it sound as if he was the only one who did anything. And i got to tell you, the men eventually fell, and he shipwrecked. And it's really sad. Because how you treat someone else's ministry, how you treat something that belongs to another person, 
is an indication of whether or not you're faithful. And Jesus looks at this stuff, Luke 16, 12. Let me read it to you again. If you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? i got to tell you, I, I'm proud of a lot of things that we've done over the years, and we've been part of a lot of great things. But two of the things I am most proud of, and there are things that my ministry didn't even do, but I will be eternally glad that I helped Tommy Barnett build the Dream Center in Los Angeles. I was one of the first partners there, and we certainly didn't give the most, but I'm telling you, we were faithful every year. And I always was very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Lord, what do you want us to do for the Dream Center? I wanted to see that succeed. There was another ministry that was in great need in 1999. It was Reinhard Bonnke. He was given opportunity to preach in Nigeria. Uh, he knew that this is likely going to be a meeting where he would win a million people in one invitation. There would be over, well over a million people who would gather together. Not a crusade in a stadium. Stadium's too small. Huge platform, huge sound system, and right in the middle of Lagos, Nigeria, in a big piece of empty land. And the president of the country had invited him to come and do this. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and told me to have $100,000 ready for Brother Bonke by the time he came to speak at our church. And we did. We had it ready. And I gave him the check when he spoke on a Saturday night. And he told about this opportunity. The Lord spoke to me that night when I got home and said, Now, I want you to give him another $150,000. So we gave him a quarter of a million dollars total. We paid for all of the handout material that he would give to over 1 million people who responded to the invitation in one night's service in that, in that crusade. I'm so proud that we were able to do that. I, I take great pleasure in this opportunity I had to be a part of something great that my ministry didn't even do. We partnered with somebody else. I am, I'm convinced that when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, one of my greatest rewards, two of my greatest rewards, will be how I helped these other guys and celebrated these other guys. And that's a test we all have to take. Can you rejoice in something that God has used someone else to do? God looks at how we treat others, and he measures faithfulness in that way. We've been talking about delegating all this week. And uh, there are three steps to delegation. First of all, you qualify people. You don't just pick anybody to delegate to, but you select carefully. And then you provide a model for this person to follow. And then the third thing you do is you have to release these people. Uh, qualify, model, and release. And so I want to turn you to the book of Luke, the ninth chapter, and it says that he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, now listen, uh, if you're going to delegate, that's essentially what you're doing. You're giving some of your power. You're giving some of your authority. That's what Jesus did. He gave his power. He gave his authority to the apostles. And then he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And so uh, we are not just given power and authority, 
but we are sent to go tell the good news and to heal. And so if you take the telling of the good news and the healing out, then all you have is a bunch of little bosses running around trying to lord it over people, and that's not what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus combined their authority with benevolence. This is what they're doing. They're going out and they're sharing good news and they're healing. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Now this is interesting. This is what he told them in Israel. There was a special dispensation on the preaching of the gospel in Israel. Now later on, Paul had to be supported. They had to have money to go preach. Israel had a culture of supporting itinerant ministers and teachers who came in. That was part of their culture. And so Jesus told them that they didn't need to take support, that the people of the land would support them. He said, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Now, see, that was totally different at the end of his ministry because he totally reverses this just before he goes to the cross. He tells them it's going to be different afterward. But while he was on the earth, there was a special dispensation for the preaching of the gospel of Israel. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So uh, he sent them out and he released them. Now it wasn't the final release. They had to come back. This was a brief little period where they went out and they had a chance to see uh, how they would do. Now, a wise manager, uh, I like to think that you are training a boxer and uh, that's how you think about this. A wise manager never puts his fighter into a match that he cannot win. You, you don't want to destroy his confidence. Uh, there may be an opportunity to go box the heavyweight champion of the world, but you know your young guy's not ready to do it yet, so you're not going to let him get into that fight. God does not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. There you see his picture, that he manages us as we go into these battles that we're going to fight because he wants us to win in everything that we do. He wants us to come out on top. Even though we may have a, a tough fight, he wants us to win the fight. So wise managers don't allow their fighters to enter they, uh, fights they can't win. When my son Whit uh, was developing, I, I put him in situations where I knew he could win. Uh, first of all, uh, he, it made him incredibly nervous for me to be on the front row watching him preach. Uh, he preferred for me not to be there. So I would not be there when he preached. I would let him preach all the Sundays that the church is giving me today, <laughs> the Sunday after Christmas and Memorial Day weekend. And, and it is funny how that works, but, but I, I do seem to get some of those Sundays. But I, I guess I have it coming because that's how I allowed him to preach in the beginning. I didn't give him three to four Sundays in a row because he wasn't ready to do a series. He wasn't quite ready yet to do that. It was better that he preach a standalone message. And I would hear him talk about how he would labor over this message for six weeks. I mean, it was a big deal with him. Well, I loved that, that it was a big deal with him, that he thought about it for a long time. I didn't want him to be worried, but on the other hand, I was thrilled that he took it so seriously. And so he would come and preach just one time. And, uh, and people would come and say, you know, Whit did a really good job. And I could tell they weren't expecting him to be that good. And he probably wasn't that good, but, but he did better than they expected. And so uh, it, it was a developmental thing, but it was a win. And that's what I wanted. I wanted a win. I didn't want to put him in a situation where he would not shine. That's what you do when you're delegating. Keep this in mind. This is a great saying for you, Pastor. Write this down. We don't use our people to build our church. 
We use our church to build our people. The work that you're having people do, you're not doing this because you want to build something great on their backs. You want this work to be a building for people. This, you're building them. This is just the thing that God's using to build them up. Listen, when you think about it like this, it changes the way you recruit people. You know, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he passes out rewards, do you know that most of the rewards your people are going to receive are rewards that they earned serving under you? I mean, there may be a chance that, yes, there are some other things they did that had nothing to do with you or your church, but most of the time, the rewards that the people are earning and the things that Jesus is going to commend them for are things that they were able to do because you gave them an opportunity to serve. That ought to change the way you recruit because uh, people are going to come up and throw their arms around you at the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to hug you. They're going to thank you for taking them away from their hobbies or from uh, some of their spare time to serve. They're going to be thrilled that they got this reward from the Lord. They're going to say, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. So Really, uh, we need to think of it like that. This is something we're doing for people. So I'm not doing this to people. I'm doing this for people. And so we, we can recruit, recruit with confidence. Now, when you put a leader in a position that they're not ready for, uh, you're going to cap the department that they're over. Uh, the people who are under them will resent them. And that's not a good place to be. You don't want to see... I, I saw that happen with too many older leaders who put their sons or favorite young minister into a position of preaching and they clearly weren't ready for it. They did it years before it was necessary. And they gave these people the spotlight. They took them from, from, from really nothing to the biggest, highest place they had. And they weren't ready. And it would have been great had they had a chance to mature into that spot. Uh, but instead, they kind of somewhat forced them on people. And everybody knew they had the position because they were a son. And, and so there was a certain amount of re resentment there. They, 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 ca they capped the department. They discouraged the leader. Uh, when a leader gets put into a situation he's not ready for, he's going to get criticism. And when he starts getting criticism, he typically is not mature enough to handle it, and he becomes insecure. That's the worst thing you can do for a young leader. I, I didn't want my son to have to respond to a bunch of critics. That's why I didn't force him into situations he wasn't quite ready for because I want people to receive him, and I want them to welcome him. Now, granted, there are always going to be some people who can never make the transition from the older leader to the younger leader. I get that. That's going to happen. But I want the majority of the people, and thank God they did, the majority of people received him. And so uh, this is what you want. Uh, insecure leaders will strike out at their followers when they don't feel like they're being received. Uh, so, and this is another thing I told my son Whit: don't preach correction. You have no business preaching correction right now. It, it'll backfire. Uh, you you would be like uh, you know correcting your own brother and sister. Uh, you know they'll take it from mom and dad, but they're not going to take it from you. And, and so that's a wise thing. If you're a new pastor going in to take over in another place, uh, you don't need to preach any corrective messages. I was going to preach on tithing one time when I was in a church and, and I'd just gotten there and I, I saw how nobody uh, paid tithes and uh, the support of the church was terrible and I was going to unload. I had a great message put together to encourage people to tithe and the Holy Spirit talked to me and said, don't do it. And I said, but everything here is scriptural. He said, I know it's scriptural. This is a great message, great theological message. Everything about it was great. But he said, it's wrong timing. 
uh, you're brand new. This is not the time for you to introduce this. You have no relationship. Listen to this. Corrections born out of relationship. You try to correct and you're not in relationship, uh, it's going to backfire on you. It'll blow up on you. You're almost wasting your time. You don't want to do that. So I didn't allow Whit to preach corrective messages for a long, long time. Now, this is what you're doing when you delegate. When you delegate, you're passing things off with care. I want my guy to win. I'm delegating this slowly. That It means I'm paying attention. Do you know what a lot of pastors do? And, and I found this particularly true in the area of children's ministry. They don't delegate, they abandon. They put somebody in charge of an area and then walk off and leave it. They don't ever inspect it. I walked around and looked at my kids' department. You don't have to be a children's worker to gauge the health of your children's department. And pastors were saying to me, we can't get any children's workers. I would ask you this question. When's the last time you preached on children's ministry? Uh, your people have no faith in children's ministry because you haven't given them any word for it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If, you're, if your people are not giving, it's because you hadn't preached on money. If your people are not volunteering, it's because you haven't preached on serving. You need to preach where you want people to go. And so that's just a fact of life. Don't, dele uh, don't abandon, uh, but delegate. When you delegate, you still have care for the thing that you passed off. You may not be the one who does it, but you still have care for that. All right, this delegation is something that we do uh, gradually. Gradually, we let the rope out. And it's better to let it out gradually than it is to throw it out wholesale and then wish I, I, I hadn't given out so much. So I was really slow with the development of my son, Whit. I could see there were times he was frustrated because there were other young men who had become the leaders of churches that he was more capable than. And uh, they were actually uh, younger than him, but I knew the time will come and it'll be right. And I, I thank God and he thanks God that we, we waited till the right time and he took it at the right time. And I could have held on a little bit longer, uh, but you know what? I knew that God had some other things for me and I, what I'm doing right now is one of them. So the thing I want you to see is we delegate, we don't abandon. Now, last thing I'm going to share in all of this series is this. It is called the law of the double release. And boy, it's important. And when you understand this, you'll have a much easier time delegating to other people. Now, let, let me give these to you. This is Mark's gospel, chapter 16. Uh, Jesus said in verse 15, go in all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He said that on the night of the resurrection, very first day that he was back from the dead. This night, he said, go in all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That happened in a closed door meeting in Jerusalem. All right. That's the first thing he said. Now, the second thing is found here in Matthew 28. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That was given in Galilee, totally different place. About two to three weeks after the resurrection, he had told the disciples to meet him there and on a mountain, probably the mountain where he called them to begin with, that's where he gave them this. Uh, they're two totally different uh, co commissions. Uh, going and preaching the gospel to every creature is different than going and making disciples. Uh, listen, God can't make a disciple and you can't make a believer. God makes believers, we make disciples. The scripture tells us we have to make the disciples. And then here's the last one. This is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
That is the last of the Great Commissions. There are three of them. One of them was given in a closed-door meeting on the night of the resurrection. One of them was given on a mountain in Galilee. And the third one was given on the Mount of Olives on the very moment of the ascension when Jesus went back into heaven. He is saying, you go preach the gospel. Now, God will bless churches that do just that. He would prefer that we not only preach the gospel, but also make disciples. And then ultimately, he would like it if we would do all of this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecostals lead with the third thing. They're all about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm a Pentecostal, by the way, but I've seen this. I, you can get so stirred up about the gifts that that's the most important thing. And, and it's very important, but our most important mission is to preach the gospel to every creature. That's why these things were given in sequence. Now, let me show you what's going on here. This is the law of the double release. Did you ever think about it like this? Jesus released the 12 to go do the work of the church. But you know what they did for him? They released him into his ministry. And he's been doing his ministry. It's fivefold. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. Let me show you his fivefold ministry. He is the high priest of our confession. That's how the book of Hebrews. He's the mediator of the covenant between God and men. He is the head of the church. He is the judge of the living and of the dead, and he is the author and the developer of our faith. He's doing all those things right now. He has a job. This is his real job. His real job was not to preach and pray and cast out demons and do all those things that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That was what he did to train the others. For over 1,900 years, almost 2,000 years, he's been doing these other five things. That's his real ministry. What would have happened had Jesus not trained those 12? Then he would never be able to go do his real ministry because it wouldn't have mattered that he died on the cross, rose from the dead, if there's nobody left behind to tell about it. So Jesus had to release them, but they in turn released him. And you will never fulfill your ministry fully until you find helpers. You will be trapped in doing jobs that are not really yours to do because you've been called to something else. No one ever starts out in the fullness of his calling. You start off in what other people are supposed to be doing, and little by little you're training and releasing them, and then they in turn are releasing you. And so a good leader has to delegate because if you can't delegate, you'll never enter your own ministry. That's all the time I have for today, but we're not done with this series. We've got five more lessons. We'll see you again on Monday. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Thank you for listening.